Morning again. If you have your Bibles, we'll be reading from Judges chapter 3, verse 31. Before I forget, begin, um, I guess maybe a, a good lesson in foresight. When I selected the uh, title for the sermon, I did not take into account that it would be placed on the marquee. So I know that if many of you rode by, you see Mr. Justin Estrada. Who is this guy? So I know that uh, all of Brandon has been wondering with you, who is this guy uh, who's going to preach to us? So uh, that's a lesson in foresight. Uh, make sure that you think a little bit more ahead uh, before you give a cheeky title for your sermon. Um, so that's Judges chapter 3, verse 31. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anat, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad. And he also saved Israel. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you with humble and contrite hearts, Lord, knowing that as we receive your word through the power of your spirit, we are unworthy, Lord. We are like Isaiah as he sees your majesty, as it is revealed to him, even as it is revealed to us in a real way in your word now, and we see woe to us. For you are a holy God, and we are of unclean lips. And knowing this, Lord, we ask forgiveness. But we know that that is not the end of the story, because in Christ we can see true, Lord. The scales have fallen off our eyes. Our dirty rags have been replaced with, with clean ones because of what Jesus has done for us. And we know that even as Jesus worked in the apostolic era, we knew that he, we know that the Son was working in the Old Testament, just as He is working today. And so we ask, Lord, that we might see how You worked in Your people before the incarnation of our Lord, and that we might know through this study and through this preaching how that same God works today as He worked yesterday, and as that message that has been spoken for generations upon generations, as this story of Shamgar and his deliverance of Israel has been spoken to generations of your believers, of your people who you have called unto yourself for a treasured possession. Lord, that same God is speaking to us now, and that same message is relevant to us now for training us up in righteousness. So speak to us today, Lord, through your Spirit. We pray these things in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen. So we say Shamgar. So I've read this verse. And if you know anything about Shamgar, Shamgar, you know that he's only mentioned one other time throughout the Old Testament. And you think, here's somebody who's done something miraculous. Because this is, this is not a feat that somebody does every day, is it? You don't just pick up an ox goad and deliver Israel by killing 600 Philistines just on, the, on account of a whim. You just don't leave your front door and say, what am I going, am I going to do today? I'm going to go deliver Israel by using a common agricultural tool and killing 600 people with it. Not just 600 people. These are 600 people armed with iron, armed with military technology far superior to your own. So you just don't do this. Something miraculous is happening here. So much so that all of Israel is delivered. But look, we only have one, two verses on Shamgar. If you think about it, Samson, who didn't deliver Israel, we remember at the beginning of Samson's life, before he's even born, we see that the prophecy to his parents is that he will only begin to deliver Israel. 
And we look at all the time allocated to Samson, how he kills a thousand people with the jawbone of a donkey. And he goes and he offers riddles that are so puzzling that his wife has to be coerced in order to extract the truth. And we see even at the end of his life, Samson had these pillars pushing them out and destroying and killing more Philistines in his death than he does in his life. But never delivering Israel. Yet we have chapters devoted to him. We see little Zacchaeus in the account with Jesus as he's traveling into town. We see this little Zacchaeus, this kind of unspecial, un, uh, ordinary figure who's tiny. We see him get ten verses in the New Testament allocated to him. But here's Shamgar killing 600 people with an ox goad. And he gets two verses. So why? Why only two verses? One being an actually a song, the other being a narrative, of course. Why only this one verse here in the book of Judges? Surely the author of Judges, surely the writer knew more. Surely he knew a little bit about Shamgar's background, or he knew a little bit about the events surrounding Shamgar's deliverance of Israel. So why just one verse? Well, we're going to try to get to the bottom of that today, but before we actually see why the narrator placed this verse, this lone verse, in its context. Maybe by examining a little bit about what we've known from some extra-biblical sources, a little bit about who Shamgar was, what we've been able to determine, to determine, it might give us a little bit more insight into why the author of this book placed him in this account around these special deliverers, these men who were called to do great things for the Lord, even if only one verse was devoted to them throughout the history of God's people. So let's go into the verse here and we'll learn a little bit more about who Shamgar is. So in verse 31, after him was Shamgar. So we see after him. Now, I'm going to do this. I'm going to chop this up into pieces. So please don't think that I'm just being pedantic here. But it's important. So I'm going to chop this up into pieces and we see after him was Shamgar. Now that's a chronological note. You just generally just don't see after him to note some type of literary or redactional purpose. But generally when we see this construction, it means that there's a chronological gap here between what comes before and what comes after. So we see after him. So that tells us a little bit about the time in which Shamgar lived. So he lived after Ehud. And we know that Ehud was a deliverer around the early parts of Israel's conquest of the land after they had come in through Joshua. So we know a little bit about that. So we know that Shamgar is probably located around the time of the early 12th century B.C. Not only that, when we look a little bit after Shamgar, we see the account of Deborah and Barak. And when we look at Deborah and Barak, and we, after they've defeated uh, their enemy, Deborah sings a song with Barak. And Shamgar is noted there. Turn to, with me in verse 6 and following of chapter 5 of the book of Judges. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anat, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned and travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. So we see that Shamgar predates Deborah, which also puts him early in this time frame. And we see that things were very bad around this time in Israel. That there was oppression on all sides. Things were so bad that the Israelites couldn't go along with the normal commerce of life. There was no travel between towns because there was no authority, no government, no union of the tribes to make sure the bandits and the raiders weren't out on the highways robbing people and stealing from them. So we see, one, that Shamgar is early on in the settlement of the land of Israel, 
early 12th century BC, and that things were very bad at that time. So bad that normal life in Israel, commercial, rural, city, all the like, was suspended in a real way. So we see that. So that gives us a little bit more information about who Shamgar was and when he lived. Then we look at the name of Shamgar itself. If you'll notice this name, it's difficult to see it in the English, but it's actually a quadriconsonantal name. Now that might not mean much, but if we know anything about the language of Hebrew, we know something very important is that the language is based on a triconsonantal system. Right? Those, those words are fancy, but there's just, all it is is the difference between three consonants and four consonants. When you read Hebrew, all you're seeing is three consonants with prefixes, things that go at the beginning of a word, and suffixes, things that go at the end of the word, and the switching of the vowels in between. So for instance, if I want to say somebody is a king, I use the consonants M, L, K, and I just insert some vowels in there, two E's. If I want to say he rules, I use the consonants M, L, K, and then I just put two A's in there. If I want to say kingdom, I use the consonants M, L, K. And then I just add a couple of vowels. So that makes sense. So we see that. And that happens in names. That happens all throughout the Hebrew language. So all throughout the, the Old Testament, we're seeing three consonants, three consonants, three consonants. And a mixing of, of vowels in there. But all of a sudden, when we get to Shamgar, we've seen Ehud, three consonants. We've seen Deborah, three consonants. We've seen Othniel, three consonants. And also when we get to this character named Shamgar, and we see four consonants. And so, boom, it hits us. Something's different. This isn't an Israelite name. This isn't something that we would expect in the annals of David's mighty men, for instance, or in, in, some, in some genealogies from the kingly line of David. No, on the contrary, there's something different. And so that gives us a hint. If it's not a normal Israelite name, as a matter of fact, we don't really know what it means. You don't see it anywhere else in the Bible. If it's not a normal Israelite name, then why would an Israelite have this name? Which leads us to an important conclusion. Most likely, Shamgar was not an Israelite. Now, sometimes people want to see this title, the son of Anat. They look at Judges chapter 1, and they see that the house of Anat, the Beit Anat, the house of Anat, was a place located in Galilee, or in the tribe of Naphtali. And it was a city there in which Canaanites dwelt and the tribe of Naphtali was unable to drive them out. So you said, well, maybe Shamgar was a Canaanite who actually lived amongst the tribe of Naphtali because they were unable to drive him out. But if you think about it, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense because Shamgar is about to deliver Israel. And if Israel is coming to ravage your land, because what does God say they are to do? They're to go into the land and they're to apply the ban to them. They're to commit to destruction all the Canaanites. And it's only because of lack of faith that they're unable to do so. And that's what happens with Naphtali. So if you're a Canaanite and you have these external invaders coming into your land and into your town, it seems very unlikely that you would go about the business of saving them, of delivering them, by thwarting a threat that could very well be helping you, these Philistines. They were coming in, and they weren't going to eradicate everybody, but they were going to impose their own rules, as opposed to the Israelites, who were coming in not just to impose their own regime, but to destroy the extant population in the land. So it seems unlikely that he would be from that town, Beth Anat. But here we say he's the son of Anat, and that gives us 
another clue. We see this word, this name Shamgar, and this title, Son of Anat, popping up all throughout the ancient Near East in extra-biblical literature, particularly in literature of the Akkadians in the Northeast. Now, the Akkadians were Semitic people. In other words, they had the same origination of the Israelites. They come from Shem. They're Semitic people up in the Northeast of the Middle East. So we would think somewhere around the area of Iraq or Iran, up in the Northeast there, with Akkad. And we see there the name Shamgar, the son of Anat, popping up all over the text. And in fact, we even see it in Egypt. And this name Shamgar, son of Anat, is associated with this tribe of people called the Hurrians. And the Hurrians had come down from the Caucasus Mountains or the Armenian Mountains, and they had established themselves amongst the Akkadians. And they loaned themselves out as mercenaries at this time against foreign invaders because the Akkadians, who they had settled among, had all these types of of external enemies pressing in. And so these Hurrians came down and they found a place. They were warrior type people. And they found a way to sell their ware, their warrior-like society. And so they, they essentially allowed themselves to be purchased as mercenaries. And so that gives us more of a clue. So we see Shamgar, the son of Anat, being associated with a mercenary culture. But the key here is the son of Anat. Anat was a goddess in the ancient Near East, a Canaanite goddess, in fact, and she was a goddess of war. Now, we've heard that, t- that title before, a goddess of war. It's used in various ways and means in our own culture. But when we don't think about goddesses of war, there were very few who were as bloody and as ruthless as Anat. We have tales associating her with Baal. She was a Canaanite goddess, you know, weaving webs of destruction all throughout the ancient Near East. So much was her bloodlust that wherever she went, bodies essentially were hacked to pieces and were then used as her own trophies. And lest her bloodlust would be faded, she would then call a feast. And at the feast, as all the victors would gather with her, she would go on a rampage even there because she just couldn't get enough of war. And one of her favorite means of destruction and killing was actually the use of a bow and arrow. And we have arrowheads that we found around Bethlehem in the south of Israel and around the territory of Judah. We have arrowheads that on them are inscribed the inscription to Anat. Or names like Shamgar, the son of Anat, indicating that warriors who were part of a mercenary or a military society would then inscribe, there's, a, there's different ways to talk about this, but would inscribe their name on those arrowheads And as they shot, they would say a prayer, hoping that that inscription would cause a knot, would invoke her to have that arrow find its mark true. And afterwards, after they had retrieved their arrow, pending that they won the battle, they would go and they would dedicate it to a knot as an arrow that was cultivated and crafted by her for that military victory. So we see, so all these things are painting this picture of who Shamgar might be. We see these people, these sons of Anat, who are dedicated to this warrior goddess. We see that he has a Hurrian name, a people that are dedicated to war, that allow themselves to be purchased as mercenaries. And so as this evidence comes together, it points us to one direction, really, is that Shamgar was a non-Israelite mercenary acting on behalf of somebody other than Israel to thwart the Philistines. Now, who is Shamgar acting on behalf of? Well, we know that at this time, the Philistines, who were not a Semitic people, had come from, the, come from the West, around the Aegean Ocean. And they had traveled down, and they were invading this land, this land in 
in Palestine and all the way down to Egypt. And Egypt always had their sticky little fingers in Palestine. They had to because it formed a land bridge between their own domain in the southwest and the Akkadians in the northeast and the Mesopotamians over in the north to the east of Egypt as well. And in order to get there, you had to go through Palestine. It was the only way. Otherwise, you had to risk the desert. And not only did you have the desert and its conditions against you, but you all had all the nomads and the bandits there seeking your head. And so they always wanted to have their hands in Egypt. And we actually have a text that when the Philistines came and they began to invade Egypt and began to invade Palestine, the Egyptians responded. And since they had the threat in their own land, they conscripted all their own Egyptians to Egypt lest things go badly and the mercenaries they hired joined the Philistines and ravaged Egypt in their own land. So they did the conscripted mercenaries. We even have a text, an Egyptian test, attesting to these sons of Anat that they conscripted. And they sent them to Palestine to thwart the Philistines so that they could entertain and keep their own interests in that land. And the place they would do that, they sent them to the valley of Jezreel, which works perfectly in terms of the geography of the book. Because we're moving north, we're moving north, and the next book that we see deals with Deborah and Barak up in the north, right next to the valley of Jezreel. Because that's where the Philistines would have come in, because they had iron chariots, as Judges chapter 1 tells us. And so you can't go through the central hill lands to fight the Israelites. You have to go to the lowlands. And the perfect access would be in Jezreel. So all, all this evidence is bringing us to the point that Shamgar was a Hurrian mercenary hired by Egypt to thwart the Philistine invasion at the valley of Jezreel. And so we've painted this picture. This is who Shamgar was. But things that point out to us most is that this is a man who is not an Israelite, who's dedicated his life to war, and is a devotee of a goddess of war, of a pagan goddess, a ruthless goddess. A bloodthirsty goddess. And now, before we look at how the author of the book of Judges, how we can look at this man, how we can see in this man a deliverer of Israel, let's look at how he delivers the Israelites. Look how he kills 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad. Now, we have no idea how this happened. The closest thing we have is Samson killing the Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey after he'd been turned over by the Judahites. I see later in the book. But let me try to paint a picture here of what I think might have happened. So this is apocryphal. I can't say it happened this way, but bear with me. It, it, it leads into, uh, into the point. So we see Shamgar, probably the lord or the leader of this mercenary troop, somebody of note, and he's fighting on behalf of the Egyptians. He's fighting these waves of Philistines as they come in. And since this was a mercenary group committed to the bow and arrow, as their goddess was, you could see them high up in the valley of Jezreel, high up on one of the sides, one of the hills, firing down on the Philistines as they invade the land, as this battle wages. And the other mercenary troops of the Egyptians are in that valley, fighting and fighting and fighting. And so we see him shooting arrows down. But the battle turns badly. And those troops that are engaging the Philistines head on, on the ground, we see them being decimated. And so Shamgar is just a mercenary. Right? He doesn't owe anything to the Egyptians. He's gone and he's fought as he should. And he doesn't want to die today. So he and his group, they begin to flee. But the Philistines, they see them running. And they know that this is a conscript of the Egyptians. And so they, they pursue. And however it happens, Shamgar finds himself alone 
We see that it's the men that were probably with him are picked up and they're dead. And so as Shamgar is running, he finds himself in a farm, in a village that has been, or some type of small village that's been abandoned due to the Philistine invasion. Maybe an Israelite village. And what does he do? He finds himself maybe along this, maybe in a barley field, you know, or there's lentils. And what does he see? As the Philistines are on him, he's out of arrows. Anad is not there to help him. His weapon of choice is gone. And so he looks around, just as Samson did, after Samson had been freed, and he sees an ox goad. And all an ox goad was was essentially a stick with a pointy end. And it is what it is. It's a hapax legomenon. In other words, this word only occurs once in the entire Bible. It's the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that really tells us what it is. And all it is is just an instrument used to poke the ox so that he'll go straight. Or that when he goes down to eat some of the barley or the wheat, that he'll continue along. So he picks up this ox goad and he begins to wield it. And horde upon horde of Philistine comes upon him. But somehow, as these bodies pile up, similar to a Samson, Shamgar remains standing. And he's fighting and he's winning. So much so that the Philistines flee his wrath. They flee this man who's killing 600 people with an ox goad. And Shamgar gets away. Now, now we don't know if that's what happened exactly. But I think it's safe to say that as Shamgar is fighting these 600 Egyptians, this is something that has never, 600 Philistines, this is something that has never happened before in his life. I'm sure he's in the midst of the fray and so he's not thinking about that. But after the battle ends and these bodies have built up and Shamgar is victorious, he's got to help but think, what just happened? How did this just happen? How, I mean, the simple question is, how is an ox goad, a simple stick with a spike, able to withstand that type of beating? It's just like with Samson. Lest you think that there's some type, that the, the, the narrator, the author of Judges, didn't realize what he was saying when he said that Samson slew a thousand people with the donkey's bone. All you have to think about is that after one good crack, that donkey bone would have broken. The author knew that what he was saying was miraculous. Just as with Samson here, and his, with, uh, with uh, Shamgar, and the ox goat, something miraculous is happening. And so Shamgar goes, and he leaves, and he parts, and he begins telling people, he said, I was fighting these Philistines, and I killed 600 with an ox goat. And, also, and people don't believe him. No, no, no. His Canaanite buddies, or his Hurrian buddies, those, no, 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 there's no way that happened. We've never seen anything like that. He said, no, 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 it really happened. A knot must have been with me. So how can a knot be with you? A knot's not done anything like that for us. You weren't even using her weapon of choice. You weren't even fighting in a knot's land. This was Israelite land. This was the land that apparently Yahweh was over. You were fighting Philistines. And the Philistines actually have begun worshipping a knot. So, so this can't be a knot. But somebody else hears this story. And this is the amazing part. Somebody else hears this story and they hear that Shamgar defeated the Philistines. And they recognize that because the Philistines were thwarted at this pass, they were unable to come into Israel. They were unable to attack the Israelite towns resting in this valley and resting in the highlands. And the word begins to spread. And it spreads amongst the Israelites. And so this is the crux of the question. As they hear this story coming to them, as they hear... The story about Shamgar killing 600 Philistines with his ox goad. What are they to think? How are they to interpret this story, this event, in light of their worldview? And that's 
by this passage is here. That's why we have this one verse of Shamgar. Because the Israelites probably didn't know everything there was to know about Shamgar. Presumably, maybe an Israelite never met Shamgar. But the Hebrews, these Israelites, they had something that allowed them to look at the event in this man's life and to understand it as an act of God for the deliverance of his people because the Israelites had the promises of God and they believed them. Turn with me to Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now jump with me, if you will, to Deuteronomy chapter 7. We'll start at verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than yourselves. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. Skip down to verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now therefore, know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate Him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates Him. He will repay Him to His face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. So we see, we see your promises given by God to Israel's forefathers and to Israel themselves, ratified at Sinai and reiterated as the people traveled throughout the land, throughout the wilderness, waiting to go into the land. And we confirmed with Joshua. And then we stated at various places in the book of Judges. And we see these promises that God will be with them, that God will be faithful to them if they keep His covenant and that He will not forsake them because His mercy goes to a thousand generations for those who love Him. And that's why... The biblical, biblical author, the narrator, the one who lived probably long after Shamgar, can look at this man, this non-Israelite man devoted to a bloodthirsty God, and can see the hand of God in him. He can attribute to him the deliverance of Israel. Because it's according to God's promises that he's done this work in this non-Israelite man. Of course, we can see that the author of the book of Judges wants to have 12 judges. And so the inclusion of Shamgar rounds out that number. Of course, we can see that the paucity of information about Shamgar leads to an important place at the beginning of the book where the judges are ideal and they generally don't commit any type of 
egregious sin, even if there is doubt and lack of faith. And Shamgar, the paucity of information given about him, the brevity, leads him to a perfect placing there. But more than anything else, the author of this book could look at how God works in his people and could see this individual who's doing something for his own purposes, for his own benefit, for his own life, and can recognize that God has used him to deliver them so that Israel might continue and they might continue to call upon the Lord and they might not meet their demise at the hands of the Philistines. So that's why Shamgar is included in the book of Judges. That's why he's there. That's why he's in the place he's in. That's why the author included such a sparse commentary on an unknown individual. And so what, but what does that mean for us today? Well, Jesus has also given us promises, hasn't he? In John chapter 14, Jesus promises a spirit after his ascension so that the spirit will be with us and that he will meet every need, that Jesus will meet every need through the comforter that is coming to assist us. Jesus also makes promises, even as we heard today in Sunday school. We heard about the kingdom and how the kingdom grows. And Jesus made promises that the kingdom of heaven is growing amongst us. It starts off small, even as small as a mustard seed, or even as small as just a little bit of leaven and a loaf. But it grows, and it grows as that spirit inhabits us, and as the word goes forth, and as we evangelize, knowing that it is the spirit who changes the heart, we see the kingdom grow and grow, and it's seamless. And so he has made these promises. We see that he also promises that in Matthew that Jesus will come back, that he'll return in judgment, and he'll bring with him a glorious, everlasting kingdom that will have no end. And so he's made these promises. And it's tempting for us nowadays to look at the world around us, to see maybe the upcoming political election, the, the presidential election, to see what's happening with our troops overseas, to see what's happening in the world with hunger and famine, with genocide and the threat of nuclear war, and to see all these things and to think, where are the promises of God? Where are the promises that Jesus made that His Word is going forth, that setting root? Because as I look around, as I look in our public schools, and I look in our public domains, I see the name of Jesus being eradicated left and right. I see the persecution of Christians from Tim Tebow to the man who preaches on the street corner. I see these things. But at this point, when we see this persecution, we need to remember what Paul tells us in Romans 12, uh, Romans 11. Let's go to, uh, actually, let's go to Romans 12 real quick. Verse 1. Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, what Paul is telling us here is that a proper worldview... Right? A renewing of the mind by the power of the Spirit can see and interpret events happening around us as the sovereign will of God. And that all these events are doing exactly what Paul had just told us in chapter 11. From Him and through Him and to Him are all things. In other words, from Christ and through Christ and to Christ are all things. Right? A proper Christian worldview, that same worldview, generations later, that the author of Shamgar had, 
the same worldview, can see all these events we see around us, the good and the bad, the tragic and the glorious, and can see that all these things are leading to the fulfillment of God's promises. That Jesus will return, that His Spirit is with us, that He will be faithful to those who love Him for generation upon generation. Right, so that's what we can learn from Shamgar. You know, just that one verse. We set up all that historical context and we looked at his name, we looked at who he was, but most, most likely the author of that snippet knew those things, but he didn't have to describe it. He didn't have to tell us that. Maybe others knew. Because his real point was this. His real point was that God can use anybody, anywhere, to keep his promises. And he will keep his promises, even if it's at the unlikely hand of a Hurian mercenary with an ox goad. So let's remember that as we go out today, as we live our lives, as we look around us, let's be faithful to interpret the events we see in light of God's promise to be with his people. God's promise that Christ has won the victory at his resurrection and that he will return. So let's go forward in that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have given us promises and these are promises that we can trust because you are true and you are trustworthy. And what you say has authority and never returns void. May we cling to these promises. May we learn the lesson that Shamgar teaches us that all things are into your will and all things are from you, through you, and to you. And may that shape and mold every decision and every thought that we have. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.